Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's early in the week, Monday night. I'll tell you the truth. I'm so tired. This is going to sound silly. I have the energy to do with other projects, so I'll do a podcast instead, because then I can just talk free association. Uh, on the Parsha, this week, the uh, talk is being sponsored by uh, Janet Abramowitz, by the Abramowitzes, here in Baltimore, Dove and my show, old friends, uh, because Janet has uh, two yard sites for her mother and father, her, and these are in their memory. Uh, the mother was Funa Michael. Uh, Shana from Abbas Chaim was the other day, just before Rosh Chodesh, 28 Teves. My father is 29 Teves. And uh, her dad, uh, Arnold Michael, Dr. Arnold Ma- Michael, Avram Chaim Ben Yosef Ariyeh, whose uh, yard is coming up in 25 Shvat. Uh He passed away in 2012. I remember him. Uh, so very honored. This is quite a week. Turns out I'm going to be adding, it looks like I'm going to have to add an extra lecture to my series because the material just piled up. So I'm going to be looking for sponsors if anybody's interested in sponsoring a lecture or part of a lecture. Let me know. I wasn't planning on it, but just the material getting out of hand uh, in terms of quantity. But anyway, let's talk about the Parsha a little bit. This week we got Bo. Now, who hasn't heard about Parsha's Bo? I mean... That's your Haggadah Seder, right? You know, that's all the words from the Pesach Haggadah. This week is Yitzhiah Smith Ryan, correct? However, um, I can only uh, say, I just mentioned before in the Zoom, that if I ever give a talk on a Parsha, something like that, your attention has to be drawn to something you haven't seen before. Until it's endless, and uh, unless you go through every square letter with a fine-tooth comb, very few people do that. And so... I noticed one or two things, and that's what I think I'll uh, say a few words about tonight, in terms of Parsha, give you time to digest it, see if you agree or disagree. My attention was drawn to um, the fact that there's a lot of um, tension and losing of tempers in Parsha's bow, unlike uh, Bo'era. Uh, as far as I can see, I'm going by memory here, but we just finished Parsha's Bo'era, and pretty repetitive. Moshe says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I won't let them go, or I will, and then he lies. And then Moshe comes back, and so on and so forth. Sometimes by exactly pyro, sometimes by Yechazek HaShlem is pyro. The old words that we all know from high school. Fine. Now, um, when you, but it's pretty cut and dry. God commanded uh, Moses, as I said last week, to uh, give to be civil with Pharaoh. Uh, to, uh, you know, know a couple of malchus. So Moshe speaks pretty directly. It's not really beat around the bush that much. But on the other hand, you know, he doesn't uh, go over to Pharaoh and say, look, you blockhead, you know, I can wipe the floor with you and stuff like that, which he probably could. So that's interesting. Now, now when it comes to this week's Parsha, all of a sudden they start haggling over the details of leaving and then 
at one point, Pharaoh actually kicks Moses out of the palace. He didn't do that before. And then later on, they have this shouting match. Uh, Paro says, Tomus, Next time I see you, you're dead. And Moshe says, I ain't going to see you anymore. And, uh, uh, and you, and your servants, he was being polite, going to come and kiss my feet. You know, beg me to leave. And Moshe departed in anger. Now, uh, Moshe is supposed to be a pretty even-tempered guy. It's one of the reasons God chose him. And pretty so far, he held it. But, you know, there's a strain to everything. This has been going on for 10 months. Every plague is roughly a month. And after a while, you get tired of negotiating with the North Vietnamese, with the North Koreans. You know what I'm saying? It gets on your nerves. Especially, like Pharaoh, when they lie and this and that and the other. And so, um, you get these scenes. And if you look at the men of Shabbat, it's very nice. I think I mentioned it once before. That uh, as Moshe storms out of there, God says, who gave you permission to leave without me telling you? You look at the Sukkim, you'll see it. You got to tell him about the Makas Bechoros. And Moses turns around and he says, Oh, you know, I need a table He lets Pharaoh have it with both barrels. So, in other words, all of a sudden things got really like intense and uh, personal and so forth. It's it's interesting in that regard. Now, um, let that be the case. The thing is, what are they haggling over? They're haggling over what is a very strange uh, uh, part, which is Moshe at the beginning said, we're only going for three days, which was a lie. right? Let's assume that. So why did he say it? That's the real question lies behind it. My attention was drawn, see, I speak to my shul every night for 20 minutes on the Zoom, and so I was just flipping through the Parsha. I'm talking about Bo, of course. And it caught my eye, actually, when I did the sign Mikra, I tried to do it early in the week. Um, it caught my eye when, um, if you had Exodus 10, 10, Pusik 10, where Moshe says, Vayusha Moshe Arpar Lemar, Lechu Ivdus Hashem Lokechem Ivo Miyahokim. You want to go for three days? Who intends to go? And Moshe says, We're taking everybody, and Pharaoh loses it. Right? Which, to my mind, is a pasuk that cannot exactly be translated. It's a rhetorical piece of some sort. Whenever you have these sukkim where the Hebrew just doesn't work out in a simple way, right, to make a common sense sentence out of it, you know you're onto a nugget. That's what drew my attention. Okay, so Perak ten pasigud, ten ten, because Moshe said, um, "I'm sorry, pasig." Yeah, that's right. Pharaoh said, uh, "All right, I'm going to give in." This is right after Moshe threatened him with a locust plague which is going to devastate the economy. And indeed, when Pharaoh's economists heard this, uh, it didn't take much imagination for them to understand the damage a locust plague is going to do. You see, until now, the plagues are kind of weird. You know, Doms, Kinim, Arov, whatever. This is not normal. Imagine Arov being all, animals all rushing from the sides to attack the city. That's like an Alfred Hitchcock picture. Uh, but, you know... When you get to our, when you get to Arbeb, they know what that is. Anybody who deals with agricultural life knows what locust plagues are, and they're terrible. I mean, you die. There's no transportation to bring food from elsewhere. So what do you do? That's why when Moshe said, "I'm going to bring Arbeb," 
Economic people said, let him go, cut your losses. Don't you know that the country's going to crash? So in other words, Pharaoh's own advisors put pressure on him. Paro clearly unwillingly summons Moshe back. And he's trying to dicker. You understand? Even though Moshe's gone where it counts, and he's going to bring, he's threatening to bring a, a locust plague, which will devastate the whole place, right? Well, um, they're going to devastate everything. We all know what that is. Pyro cannot help but being the used car salesman is trying to get an extra 10 bucks out of you, you know? He said, all right, I'll let you go. Don't bring the locust plague, but me, but me, I'll hold him. In other words, I'm still holding you to what you said, which is, you just on a three-day journey on a religious thing, and then you're coming back. And when Moshe says, we're taking all the kids with us, Losi Sher Parasah, Paro loses it, and he says words like, you can drop that. May your God be with you. You can both go to the devil, or something like that. Rashi more or less says this, you know, the same way your God should be with you, the same way I'm going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go. It's clearly some kind of rhetorical curse. And he says, which means my God, Ra, the Egyptian God, is going to block you. Okay. But he said, uh, isn't that right? He says, uh, so this belies the big question. Which is what's shot with this three day business? For some reason, you know, in other words, why did they say we're going to only go for three days? Uh, this is one of the toughest nuts in the Parshanot. Why wasn't simple? God sends Moses and he said, like this, let my people go, period. And I'm going to jack up the the, the, the country. And the pressure gets so heavy, you'll have to buckle, which is what happened. So why don't you simply say, I want you to let the slaves go? That's what they had in the movie, you know? They didn't say we want a three-day uh, uh, religious vacation. We want, we, want, we want to leave, go free, go be free. And so, you see, from time to time, Moshe repeats this. Remember, he says, Why do you want the behemoths? Hey, Nizbach, Tovas, Mitzrayim, Leonim, Loyskalunu. We got to take our animals, you know, because we can't do them here in Egypt. Uh, you know, constant references to this. And even here, when faced with an economic disaster, Pharaoh is still trying to hold on like the car salesman. He said, okay, I'll let you go, but not the uh, only adults, not the children. That should be the hostages. After all, if you're taking the children too, that sounds like you want to flee the country. I'm holding you to your word. It's strange. Now, this isn't Moshe lying. It's God. Because uh, back at the burning bush, if you remember... He says, you know, something like that. Back at the burning bush, when Hashem commissions Moshe, he tells him, go to Paro and say, we want to go for three days. Why does Hashem do that? Now, I'll tell you the truth. Just now, before I started this podcast, I just flipped through before. Mikris Gadol, just for a heck of it to see what's going on. It's funny, nobody really deals with it. It's funny. All you see is, People like that say, Chas v'shalom, shu badoim, shu arma, that, oh, it can't be trickery, it can't be deceit. Hashem doesn't operate that way. But it is. But it is. He said he's going for three days. He didn't mean it. Right? It's a good question. Straightforward. And to my surprise, 
the regular unfortunately didn't seem to go in that. Not them where even that Barbanella pulled out, he's usually good in these kind of situations. And uh he was I'll tell you what he says, I'm not crazy about it. First he quotes the drushes around, but it's not really the drushes around either. There is a let me say this. There is a Metatraba, okay? Which asked this question more or less. I never liked that Medrash either. And the Medrash says, the reason, why do you say three days? So this way, Par would chase them in Parsha B'Shalach. Now, as Hashem foresaw that eventually he'd have to leave, God intended that Pharaoh and the army should drown in the Red Sea. How are you going to get them to the Red Sea? Elamite promised them three days and then lie. Continue on your journey. You're not coming back. Par will get so angry, they'll chase after you and get drowned in the Red Sea. Post facto. I hear the Vard, of course, obviously, very spiritualized interpretation, but I don't like, you know, the, it, it's not Misiyashev al Abshat. Okay? I get it. You know, I hear the Vard. They're not Misiyashev Abshat, not to me anyway. And then Barbanel himself wants to say something, which is, eh. He says, you know, uh, this will demonstrate how unreasonable Pharaoh is, because, you know, you'll only ask for three days, and even that he won't give. That'll show what a bummy is. I get it, but, you know, look what a mess they got themselves into. Now, by the Harbin, later on, you know, they're already talking about three days, children, behemoths, which behemoths are you going to take, and so on and so forth. They have to borrow the stuff for three days when they leave Egypt. Doesn't sound right. Then I saw something in the Siv, quoted by the name of the Siv, and that really hit me like a home run. That's what I want to share with you. Uh... There's a fundamental question about the narrative. This is something you could talk about at the Seder. I'm serious. Why three days? And the shot goes like this. Uh, the whole idea is get the Jews out of Egypt. But you know and I know, I'm going by our tradition now, most of the Jews did not want to leave Egypt. As a matter of fact, when push came to shove, 80% didn't leave. That's what a Chazal understand it. Means one fifth, eighty percent didn't leave. That's pretty bad. It's like assimilated Jews today. You know, even if Mashiach came tomorrow, they don't leave. Um, I'm sure I've quoted. I was once doing one of my history trips, and we're in Gibraltar, which is a very nice little community. And one of the big guys there, I won't say his name, who was a Shomer Shabbos, he said, "Oh, Gibraltar is like Gan Eden. Even if Mashiach came tomorrow, I would." Wish him well, and I would go visit Israel, but I want to live in Gibraltar. Whoa. And I'll tell you again, there was a religious guy. So it goes to show you how it can, you know, how, how can it get to people. So at least he was prosperous, but the slaves in Egypt weren't prosperous. So why would they want to stay in Egypt? But I'm wrong. 80% didn't I want to leave. I want you to understand what we're talking about. I'm going by what our tradition says. Even after Dom, it's Varday and Kin, Mar of Debrashkina. You know, Bard Choshech, Bard Arba, even after all those plagues, right, eight out of ten plagues, they still don't want to leave. That's incredible. Even though you've seen the economy of Egypt, Egypt wrecked, and all the elites disgraced, and all that stuff, they still wanted to stay in Egypt. It's incredible. Now, on the other hand, that's not what Hashem wanted. This happened al apobi al chamaso. He gave it his best shot, but if you have Bechira, you have Bechira. I'll say it again. I would say that God put a certain type of pressure on them. By that I mean 
the plagues ought to constitute for most normal people a certain kind of pressure to leave. Because if you have a God that can pull this off, especially if you go like these, unfortunately, you know, you see there's one God in the world and all that stuff. So one would ordinarily think, well, I'm leaving Egypt going for something higher and better. Higher and better. But they didn't see it that way. Even after eight plagues, they didn't want to leave. Ad Kedekach, that they died in the plague of darkness, which was the ninth plague. Okay, so it seems to suggest something along the following lines. So when Moshe shows up in Egypt, he's going to do his darndest to get all the Jews to agree to leave. You hear what I just said? He's got a double-barrel program. We usually don't think about that. He's got two goals. And he was more successful in the first and in the second. The first goal is to get the Egyptians to let the Jews go. The second goal is to get the Jews to go. Now, he was more successful in the first because eventually he got the Egyptians with the plagues to crack and let the Jews go. He was not successful in the second because if 80% of his uh, intended rescuees didn't go, didn't choose to go, it's a failure in the part of Moshe. Um, I'm not trying to dump it. I'm just saying that's a fact. It goes to show you the stubbornness of the Jews, blah, blah, blah. I get it. But it's it, it's remarkable. So he has two goals, two tasks. And the Rosh Hashanah obviously wanted everybody to go, but you can't make them go if they're, you know, so shakua in the Memtashari Tumor, whatever they call it. Now, that means that when Moshe shows up, he has one of his tasks, besides the task of persuading Pharaoh, one of his tasks, this is interesting, is to go around to the different Jews and say, listen, this is a doable thing. And leave when I tell you. I'm telling you, within a year, less than a year, we're going to be out of here. Please leave. I know some of you have nice houses. I know some of you have Egyptian girlfriends. I don't know what they had over there, all right? But obviously, they had such a situation, they didn't want to leave. I want you to remember, they didn't want to leave up to death. The reason they died in Mach, in, in the reason they died in um, Choshech was otherwise, Machus Bechorus would be a farce. All the firstborn die. The Egyptians are freaked out. The whole country, the arrogant ones have turned humble. And the people, and they say, go, go, go. And the Jews don't want to leave. I mean, that would have been a farce. Imagine a Pesach like that. That would be Nechil Hashem Shein Kamon. So instead, God rather ruthlessly went and killed out the 80%. So that when the time comes for, in this week's Parsha, for the Egyptians to actually happen, and power when the Egyptians say, leave, leave, leave. The Jews will leave. The Jews will leave. So it's an impressive scene only because the bad actors have been, uh, deus ex machina, you know, the bad actors have just been uh, summarily removed from the story. Right? It's, a, it's a remarkable shot. Summarily removed from the story. Now, um, okay, so how does this have to do with what we're talking about? When Moshe shows up and he's trying, unsuccessfully trying, during these 10 months that he's hitting the Egyptians over the head, at the same time, he's constantly going around making speeches among the Jews. When the time comes, leave. When the time comes, drop everything. Go, go, go. Don't stay behind for Egypt. Don't do that. His words are falling on deaf ears of the 80%. Right? Here's an entire story 
which is an Iker part of the story of Yitzis Mitzrayim and the Makis Bechorus and the Passover Seder that the Torah doesn't comment upon, but you can reconstruct it based on the little that we know. Right? If 80% died in the Makis Choshech, you can tell what happened in the eight plagues before that. And so here's, Mo, you know, his interactions with Pharaoh are rather sparse. He goes to see him eight times. They have whatever kind of conversation they have. I told you, it's not necessarily a verbatim transcript. Uh, but that's it, okay? What does Moshe do the rest of the time? It seems to me, him and Aaron are going around, groups of people, groups of people. I want to talk to the people in Lakewood. I want to talk to the people in Muncie. I want to talk to the people in Chicago, people in Baltimore. This group doesn't want to leave, and that group doesn't leave, and the other one doesn't leave, and the other one doesn't leave. You see? And maybe from the hush of the families. I don't know. And so Moshe have a heck of a time. Okay. That being the case, what is, ne- so does Nitzv suggest, what is necessary, or what's a, a tactic or a tool to persuade the Jews, not the Egyptians, to leave? The answer is to say, we're just going for three days. Then you're coming back. We're going to have a, a Jewish uh, festival, Jewish Woodstock, out in the desert somewhere, and then we're coming back. That's very reasonable, isn't it? And what can you complain about? The idea was, psychologically, to get all these reluctant Jews to take the big step of stepping outside of Egypt, getting in the desert, going towards the mountain, theoretically, now listen to what I'm saying, Theoretically, I assume that's Harsinai. So if you went on a beeline, just straight, out of Egypt, and head right to Harsinai, sounds like you would have gotten there a day and a half or something, and then come back. Um, and so the, the, the idea was, all these reluctant people, all these reluctant Jews, of which were the majority, I'll say it again, the vast majority, four-fifths, if they would come to Harsinai, and they would see all that stuff, then they would say, you know, we're not going back. We'll go with you all the way to the land of Canaan. This was the dream, but like many of the dreams uh, connected with the story of the exodus of Egypt and the journey to the promised land, it fell through. We know about this with the golden calf. We know about this with, uh, you know, the Raglam. We know about this with other attempts on the part of people to borch and complain and constantly say, let's go back to Egypt. What can we do? We have such a thing. For some reason... Egypt was so attractive to them, they had to actually have dinim in the Torah, you know, lo sosim, lo shuba Don't go back, you know, it's also go back to Egypt. Yeah, and we know this. There's something about it that really pulled them in. And so it turns out that the entire tactic was not aimed towards Pharaoh, because the heck with him, he's a guy. The entire tactic was aimed towards the Jews in a sort of desperate attempt to say, Tamu uruuki tov, you're not kind of art. Which is, leave for a few days, see what it's like not to be in Egypt itself. The avir will probably be good for you. Once you get out of Egypt, you won't see idols everywhere. You won't smell the incense of the priests everywhere. You won't see all this junk everywhere. You'll be in the midbar. Get it? You'll start to be, it's like it's like a smoker, you know? You get out into clean air, and they go, hmm, this is not bad. Or as they used to say when I was a kid, they gave Irishman a glass of water. They said, gee, what is this, you know? <laughs> So, the point is, Moses is addressing the Jews. Or, uh, let me rephrase that. God told Moses at the burning bush, this is what you should say, so it'll have an impact on the Jews, on the Eden. 
Okay? Uh, this was a sad, desperate attempt. Now, it did not work. And what's really interesting is that Moshe doesn't get in Parsha's Vera into this kind of nitty-gritty uh, to say we want all of our children all the rest of it. He was like vague uh, all through Parsha's Vera. Uh, I'm not pulling back to look it up, but you'll look it up, you'll see. You know, power doesn't say me, me, Hulkim, and all the rest of it. Now he does. Why does he do that? Uh, because coming up is the Makas Bechorus. Once the 80% are gone, uh, then we can uh, drop the pretense. Then there's no reason for me to say we're going for three days and all this kind of business. You see? Now he doesn't tell Paro because the implication in this interpretation is he never cared about Paro in, in, anyway. Well, he doesn't care about him. That may be what's behind the Chazal that says he was planning to destroy the Egyptian army in the, in the Yamsu. That might be a rhetorical way of saying he won't care about Paro. I'm not sure. But once it's clear that the 80% are not going, uh, which it is by the time you get to Parsha's bow, and by Arba and Choshech, once that happens, so Nebuch, you know, let's put it this way, uh, there's nobody to, to, to persuade anymore. And we can strip the pretense, and then you can simply say, we're out of here. Okay? So whatever Paro says, which is, I'm letting you go, but I'm only going to give three days, or this, that, and the other, or they're borrowing all the rest of it, is a contempt towards Egypt. Now, why is it contempt towards Egypt? I'm not 100% sure, but I get the idea that showing contempt for Egypt is part of the psychological process of liberating yourself from your mental dependency upon them. Emotional dependency, perhaps. Because one of the interesting parts of this week's Parsha is V'chol Elohei Mitzrayim Shvatim. The gods shall destroy the gods of Egypt. Now, that's just an interesting concept. What does it mean to destroy the gods? I mean, there aren't any real gods of Egypt. A regular reader would say like this. There's God, you know, uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and then there are also these other gods called the gods of Egypt. But our God is stronger than theirs, therefore, I will execute judgment upon them and kill those other gods. And that will show you I'm stronger than them. We don't believe that. There are no other gods. I know the Egyptians had temples, I know they had the whole rigmarole with the priesthood and all the rest of it, and the mummies. It's all baloney. Right? It's a figment of their imagination. That's all it was. So it wasn't meaning unless you say, uh, to my mind, unless you say, I will delegitimate uh, the gods of Egypt in the eyes of, the, of those who leave. You understand? I'll execute judgment means I'll kill their gods. Killing your gods like Nietzsche. You understand? He said, God is dead, meaning, he said, we've liberated ourselves from the idea of God. That's where this comes. I know the joke, Nietzsche is dead and is assigned God. But I'm just saying, that notion, uh, to use a modern example in 2021, Karl Marx was a God, he ain't no God anymore. Right? Karl, the God of Marxism died. Now, I'm not saying it's the last one, something else will come up. But 100 years ago, especially among Jews, oh my Lord, my Lord, Marx was a God. He figured it out. He's got the correct interpretation of history, dialectical materialism, the whole nine yards, blah, blah, blah. Today, it's a joke. You see? Among most people. It's a joke. So that's called Bechol Elohei Marx Esesh Shvatim. Then in the course of the 20th century, I will execute judgment on the gods of Marxism, and you'll see there's nothing in it. So it means the Egyptians, or more likely the Jews, 
will be cured of their Egyptianism. Now, I don't know if it quite worked that way. It depends how you can interpret the stories of the Jews in the desert. Do they still think that they're gods of Egypt? Or did they think there's one god, but they thought in Egyptian terms? That's a discussion for the golden calf. An interesting one. But in general, that's the notion of delegitimating, right? uh, depriving it of its, of its appeal, of its authority, which is a complex cultural phenomenon. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a complex cultural phenomenon. But clearly, uh, look how Durban Shalom was willing to twist and turn and maneuver to try to get the Jews to do what common sense ought to told them to do in the first place, which is get the heck out of Egypt. Why do you want to stay in a country which enslaved you? Why do you want to a country which persecutes you? And uh, it, 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 you, you see that there is such a mentality. And so in order to do that, I just have to sort of lure you in. <coughs> it's a little bit like some of these care organizations will do, which hopefully leaves me a little uncomfortable, but I get the shot. They'll say, just come for a Shabbaton, or just come for a thing like this. You know, a little bit. And you can go home. And the idea is hopefully we'll hook them, right? And then the more and more eventually they become from. I, I mean, I get that. Not only the Jewish missionaries do it, every missionary in the world does that. Probably a little bit. Derek Shlosis, you know what I mean? And then we'll see. Um, and so, in that light, you already understand that by the time you get to Parsha's bow, and Moshe says, we're taking everybody with us, Paro, who was sold a bill of goods, Says, oh, he loses it. You know, same. He loses it, and he says, "You can go to the devil." Moshe told him back the same thing. And uh, on the other hand, I do understand why uh, Power reacted, and it's clear that Moshe pressed a button on him. Right, he knew what would get to him because the language of Moshe is pretty arrogant. The language of Moshe was something along the lines. Excuse <coughs> me. It was pretty sweeping. Um, Moshe no longer using the language of uh, that he used before. Uh, now wait a minute. Pyro is going to blow up only because he's like Trump. You know, you press the button, and Trump's going to blow up. You know what he's going to say? Just tell him I don't like your hairdo. Whatever. The guy's pluses, but it's easy to tell the minuses. It's easy to tell the, the weakness. Now, it's really wonderful because Pharaoh's advisors just told him you're going to wreck the country. He doesn't care. This, this is this is a rage. You get it? I'm not a shrink, but then again, the rage becomes controlling. Right? He says, "Get out of here!" Even though when Moshe leaves, and by the way, Vayigaru shows something. They paro kicks him out of the palace. Well. You know the locusts are going to devastate the country. <laughs> you really want to kick him out of the palace? But the answer is he does. So we see, I would argue, in this uh, little passage, uh, tremendous insights into human uh, folly, right? Folly on the part of the 80% of the Jews, folly on the part of Paro, who's walking into a death trap. He knows the country is going to be covered with the locusts and people are going to die right and left and doesn't care because he can't bring himself out. That's the meaning of the hardening of the heart. Hardening the heart means, I know I should agree to this. I can't. Right? I can't. Why? It's the rage. It's the anger. That's a fascinating insight. Anyway, I think that's a...
a little bit to think about in this week's Parsha. Once again, we thank the Brown Witches. And uh, as I said before, if anybody's interested in helping with these lectures, I would appreciate it. Have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.